This is Research Conversations Podcast with host V. Vale, produced by Marion Wallace and brought to you by Research Publications and Books. Welcome to the Counterculture Hour. I'm your host, V. Vale, in San Francisco, and today we're especially happy to have with us John Shirley, whom I consider one of the most adventurous and prolific authors still alive on the planet. Welcome, John. Thanks. I like that one. It's pretty astounding how much you've written over the last X number of years. In fact, I'm going to pretend I'm totally ignorant and ask you to tell me about the very beginning of your writing. Like, surely you must have started writing in grade school. Yeah, I was always telling stories. I I, uh, used to tell the other kids uh, dreams that I had, and then I would embellish them, and then uh, I would... make up more the next day and a little more the next day and it, it became a serial where I just you know it started out with a real dream and then I made up a whole serial and they said what happened to your dream last night so then you know all through grade school and uh, up to like seventh grade I was I was um, making up these little stories to tell and there would be groups of kids that would be standing around scratching their heads and um, but, you know, the rest of the time, they couldn't stand me pretty much. But they, they listened to my stories. And this probably, you know, um, was a message of, uh, for my life, I guess. I, I learned from that. That's right. The beginning of writing before we had written language was storytelling, sitting around the mythical old campfires as cavemen. Yeah. And since I pretended that it was a dream I'd had, I could say anything, and and I could make it into a big, elaborate epic with, you know, armies and monsters and and uh, you know, uh, naked princesses and and uh, everything that would keep the adolescent attention. So, uh, and they were my own fantasies, really. And sometimes there was a speck of an actual dream. Tell us your dreams, they said. So I'm still, and we're, I'm still uh, making up dreams, I guess. Oh, I think that. Dreams are definitely the best source for imaginative writing. I mean, I'm so happy that from an early age you were, you somehow intuitively knew that. Because I'm not sure they taught us that in grade school now that I think about it. They didn't say, you know, write your dreams. I don't remember being told that. They're probably afraid that the, the dreams would be too um, out of control in some way. They really like to control the content of what a kid writes, which is, you know, a, a mistake that they, that they uh, commit again and again in whenever they try to, to get kids to be imaginative and poetic. And they say, be imaginative, be poetic, but don't talk about this, this, and this. <laughs> so, you know, dreams could go anywhere, though. That's scary for a teacher. Oh, can't do that. So they... But, uh, you know, probably some of the more creative ones do, especially now. Um, Some of my dreams, uh, you know, uh, actual dreams turned into short stories and occasionally that were later published. Um, You know, when I would take some main idea from it or or imagery. I had a whole series of um, recurrent dreams uh, that wouldn't go away about nuclear war when I was... Everywhere from 12 years old to, I don't know, 25 or something, uh, they would, I would get them regularly, at least once a week. It was partly as a result when I was, of, of seeing when I was in my early teens, of seeing um, the war game um, and uh, on the beach, I think in the same show. 
I don't know if you know those movies, but the war yes. game is like showed what it would be like after even a minor nuclear war and uh, talked to the few survivors and it just scared the hell out of me. And also I grew up in the shadow of the bomb. Like we, we both, I'm sure you did. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was a little kid, we used to do duck and cover. Yes, me too. And we used to have to crawl under desks uh, mm -hmm. to practice hiding from a nuclear flash. I don't know if she ever really explained what that was, what we would do afterwards. But that's got to have an impact on your little brain somewhere, you know. That was when I was in um, uh, preschool and first and second grade, as I recall. And uh, that mixed in with the movies and, and, it, it be, and, it's just, and also just the background of, of life at the time. The, uh, uh, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm for example, um, and, and people muttering, adults chewing their nails over that, you know, these things made an impression. The nuclear war was there, and it, and it started coming out in my dreams, and I had a series of dreams, hundreds, really, uh, in which I was incinerated in different ways at the end of each dream in a, a nuclear explosion. And I can usually feel it pretty vividly, too. So finally, I wrote a short story partly about that called Equilibrium, and it was eventually made it into the year's best uh, fantasy and science fiction anthology. Um, so, you know, from a dream into a year's best anthology. Wow, well, you've skipped a lot in between because it's not easy to be a storyteller and then begin actually writing, and then the hard thing is to get published, or at least it used to be. Well, in the, when I was first uh, breaking in one of the easiest places to break in was science fiction and fantasy. There was a sort of a growth, a, a burst of it at the time, and uh, it was it was a, a growth uh, genre. Uh, maybe maybe partly driven by Star Trek and a few other things. Um, and um, we, um, you know, were able to use it as as a little place to to do our experimental writing within a science fiction format. So Philip Dick obviously did that, and clearly all kinds of other people were really influenced by Philip Dick. Or J.G. Ballard, obviously, you know, started out um, in in more or less the same kinds of basic science fiction markets, um, and books like The Crystal World. You know, which is a, which is a masterpiece of surrealism was also a science fiction novel and came out as a pulp paperback science fiction novel when I first saw it. And the Drowned World, the same thing, mm -hmm. and it had a plot. Unlike surrealism, it was it had more interior logic, but it was still a, a work of surrealism at the same time. I mean, he was able to bridge that, and uh, that's that is what those of us who were kind of progressive or sort of uh, counterculture and, you know, um, uh, were able to do with early science fiction. Um, and it, at the same time, it meant that I didn't really click with a bigger science fiction audience as well as I might have. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't in Arthur Clarke or Robert Heinlein territory, mm -hmm. but I was able to get published. William Gibson had the same experience. It was where he was able to get an entree, sort of, uh, for his vision. Uh, and then one kind of tooled it for science fiction. It was just so much creative freedom in science fiction and fantasy, in some ways, anyway. There used to be more, and now it's, it's getting to be uh, formulaic and rigid again.
A lot of people also broke in in men's magazines and in right. and in action writing of different kinds yeah. and different names and pulp magazines. I wrote this specialist thing and um, people like Harlan Ellison started out writing in men's action adventure magazines, yeah. two-fisted magazines, Stag or something, you know, and uh, uh, a penny a word, or even a half cent a word sometimes, mm -hmm. two cents a word. Uh, people like... Uh, uh, Richard Matheson uh, started out there and then made the jump to Playboy and a somewhat more respectability. But a lot of people started in, in a kind of a men's pulpy thing and then, kind of, and, and then evolved into something a little heavier. Sometimes science fiction, sometimes like um, uh, the more serious kind of detective writing or something. Uh, you know, but a lot of us grew out of pulp and f sort of that was like our little womb, you know. You're right. I, I remember ages ago, J.G. Ballard was in Penthouse magazine, yeah. men's magazine. They paid pretty well. I mean, they, you know, I wrote some stuff for them. They paid about $1,000 for a short story. And, wow. and for him... Better known, you know, probably he would probably get three times that. But I was, you know, not a not as uh, well known a writer. I could get a thousand dollars in a penthouse, and for me that was big money. And a lot of the best short story writers uh, came out in in Playboy, which was, you know, it paid two thousand dollars and more for bigger names. But a base, it paid a base of two thousand dollars for a short story. Very appealing. Uh, Charles Beaumont who later became one of the founding people of the Twilight Zone. Now there's a documentary about him. Yeah. Um, uh, Richard Matheson, um, uh, Ray Bradbury did some Playboy. And, you know, they were generally science fiction or detective novels. They weren't, or stories. They weren't, uh, they weren't uh, erotic. Even the things I wrote for Penthouse uh, weren't particularly erotic. They liked to have a little something, but... It was just—it was just that you know, you, there was a sort of uh, a maleness, though somehow, <laughs> you know, that had to be there, you know. <laughs> Wait, well, you yourself crossed the line between daring to cross the genres of of being erotic and mystery. Although to me, all fiction is a mystery if it's any good. I mean, you don't know—you keep reading the fiction because you want to know what's going to happen yeah. next, etc. Yeah, well, it's true. It, it uh, there's formula mystery, and uh, you know, and, it, and it's like this definite form. It's definitely as baseball as baseball. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's it has rules like that. You know, hmm. uh, but there, but it's true that al that almost all fiction has you're solving a mystery of some kind as you go along as the reader. You know, the mystery of what's going to happen to this person and and what their life means and. Uh, yeah, I mean, and some of the best writers combine the two, also. John McDonald and people like that. Oh. And there are much hipper people who uh, I should probably mention, if I can think of their names, who are <laughs> the contemporary um, detective uh, pulp writers who are, you know, became, also have sort of been ele elevated into icon status. You're, you know, you're right. I think Gibson has somehow transcended the science fiction slash cyberpunk label to just be just a general author now. 
Or would you agree with that? I mean, I'm yeah. thinking of his last two books, Pattern Recognition and, yeah. you know, Spook Country. Yeah, it's a... Uh, uh, they, if you want to find a genre, you could call it slipstream. Some people like that one because some people cannot live without a genre term. <laughs> so then they, they say, okay, it's slipstream because we don't know what else to call it. But, um, uh, years ago, um, when, uh, after he did like his third science fiction novel, I, I told him that, you know, you should do a kind of like um, a techno thriller that is set in the near future. And that is just very William Gibson and does brings everything you do to it, but don't even bother thinking science fiction. It'll just emerge, whatever it is, and you'll make your own thing. And he said, nah. And, but eventually he did come to that on his own, and that is what pattern recognition books like that are, really. It's kind of like um, uh, Tom Clancy, but with literature and, and a total, you know, with a literary value and a totally different political point of view invested in it somewhere. I'll say. But, you know, uh, guys like Clancy sort of uh, carved that out in a way. Mm. And then uh, you can, you can, you can uh, insert, uh, you can take what the, you know, the little forms that you know, right-wing fiction writers created and you can insert uh, a, left, a left or progressive paradigm. So I've done that again and again my Eclipse books and other things. Oh, I think I think people would be definitely interested in that. Like, I, I got very pleased to read, and only very recently, your Alterna Apocalypse book. Why don't you talk about that? The Other End. Um, it's, the, it's the other end of the political spectrum. It's the other end of... It's the other end of the world. Um... Uh, it's, you know, I, it, it started out as a kind of reaction to uh, the left-behind fiction, which I had not actually read, but I'd gotten the smell of it. And uh, I'd gotten a sense of, of it, you know, it's essentially, jing you know, the left-behind books are essentially jingoistic, fundamentalist, Christian rightist, mm. uh, apocalyptic, creationists, you know, biblical literalist, um, science fiction-y a little bit, uh, books about the apocalypse, and uh, following the, the usual Christian fantasies about, um, you know, derived from the book of Revelation. Hmm. And I just felt that, that it was like if we were going to have a judgment day, why superimpose that... Uh, framework on it, you know, why do they get to do that? I mean, um, and I uh, invented my, my own alternative judgment day um, as a reaction to that partly, and also just because it was an opportunity to sort of envision something like, well, if we could transform the world, um, how, and everybody would have their own way of doing it, really. I mean, you could have your, your veil apocalypse which is like where you get your designer apocalypse and okay this is what I would like to see happen you know ev everybody should have a designer apocalypse see um, you know a custom apocalypse and uh, apparently apparently the Mormons have a, a custom afterlife to some extent where you get to go to your own planet and it's sort of customized that's what I understand oh, wow. um, but uh, uh, why not have uh, you know why not f make up your own 
judgment day and the ones that you want to be judged get judged and and they and that what happens to them is what you say and um you know it's it's like no you're not you, you know maybe maybe you one doesn't doesn't feel like condemning uh, gays to hell. Maybe one doesn't accept that that hell exists at all, uh, and so on. And and so you can totally redefine all that stuff. So I made my own designer custom apocalypse uh, in the other end. But I also tried to sort of make it connect with um, sort of. Um, uh, and I, you know the the book by Aldous Huxley. Um, uh, the perennial philosophy, oh. um, and 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 books like um, the Gospel of Thomas, and also oh. it, there's a sort of Philip Dickian thing happening too, uh, where you have a kind of a, a little bit of a Gnostic stream flowing through it. Um, so I I kind of like I feel like that um, that sort of esoteric vision or uh, is out there in the world right now. And and uh, I tried to sort of articulate it a little bit, so it's it also reaches out to more people than just my peculiar point of view. I think um, I think fans of Philip Dick would like it for that reason, because if you look at his final books, you know this could almost be a sequel to one of those. So I, I don't actually mention any of his. Uh, I don't mention his pink beam, and I don't use his terminology. But he was very influenced by Gnosticism and. And this borrows from it also, and other esoteric sources. I don't. I don't know what whether. I. I don't believe there'll actually be a judgment day, except in terms of just how we screw up. You know what? We'll create our own judgment day by screwing up, if there is one. You know, but um, it's it. It is like a whole canvas you can use to to create a fantasy, and. Um, you know why not do it for uh, from a progressive point of view, so that people like the writers of the Left Behind books are the ones who get left behind. Well, actually, I actually don't know what Left Behind meant. I must have missed it in the mass media or something. That phrase, the Left Behind books. I mean, you did describe them, but I I just haven't encountered that phrase. Well, the Left Behind. I think it's. I think the the authors of those books made up that term, but basically it means those who are left behind after the rapture. And the, the, you've heard of the rapture, and the rapture is was something made up actually by a nineteenth century minister, I think an American guy, um, based on his particular interpretation of different biblical texts and remarks by Christian teachers and and uh, Revelation. This idea that all of a sudden everybody who was like right with Jesus would at a certain moment vanish just instantly with a snap of the fingers. And they would go to a kind of paradisial place where he would like welcome them. And then, and then that's when Judgment Day starts back on earth for everybody else. And the everybody else left back on earth, they're the left behind. So um, I'm very much afraid that would probably include you. <laughs> but well, you know, uh, it would certainly include me. But uh, you know, that uh, is a very elitist point of view. Obviously, you have to be Christian first of all to be selected to go. You know, um, 
and you have to be, and really, I, I, I'm sure you have to be a certain kind of group of, of Christian, um, you know, denominations, basically fundamentalist. Mm. Um, otherwise, you're screwed and you're being left, and then, and then you, can, you might be able to eke by into some kind of, if you grovel enough afterwards, um, and you, you might be able to eke by in the, in the, uh, after, after the rapture. Um, and God might might be okay. I guess that's enough. You know, you've crawled long enough. You know, we you can you can serve uh, the other Christians as their houseboys or something. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, this is implicit, it seems to me, in those books and in that whole philosophy. So, uh, in a way, the other end is partly a critique of that, but it's also a vision of something else beyond it. Well, it's. I really liked it. I mean, just the idea that everyone who had done something underhanded and gotten away with it gets exposed and kind of justice brought to them. Yeah, it's 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 also this idea that um, that there's a kind of ultimate self knowledge, and and uh, where you are forced to see yourself as you really are, mm -hmm. and then when they do that, that is the judgment on them. You know, it's like unbearable. Um, so, uh, also, then there's a kind of, um, it assumes that there's a standard and that it, is, it starts with the assumption that there's a, um, uh, the possibility of choice. It doesn't, doesn't go with the, the, the idea of like we have, you know, we're all like uh, predetermined. Mm. It assumes that we have some choice at some point. And then there, and it, I, but I even, I even leave a little space for those who were so damaged they never had a choice, and they're mm -hmm. kind of taken care of in a little special niche. Um, but the other ones are sort of, it's as if this giant comb goes through and combs out all the lice of the world. You know? <laughs> and um, uh, then, you know, still, uh, uh, I, think, I think I basically leave room for... Uh, a couple of billion people to, to make it to the, the next stage. And everybody who's an eliminated, it, nobody burns in hell. They're just a, it's simply like switching off a light, basically. Mm -hmm. you know. Although some of them are kind of, there's a stage where some of them are allowed to hang around long enough to destroy themselves. Some of those guys yeah. who are sort of in between. Yeah. And um, they have a uh, kind of a chance, too. So I, I have a, a little bit of a uh, I made up my own, my own, you know, little theological structure. It's not really theological. I mean, I skirt that because I, I, you never meet God in the book. That's true. And there are some characters who are sort of semi-angelic, but in fact, they're just kind of representatives from the universe. They're mm -hmm. sort of like just in consciousnesses that are high, very high consciousnesses emanated by the totality of consciousness in the universe. They're, and uh, they and and their their basic they they uh, what they are is like if you took a like the grain of sand in a pearl that was the original being they were that grain of sand and then this higher consciousness formed around it and they became these mm -hmm. these beings that are utilized by the universe um, and we would identify them as angelic because we don't know what else to call them but in fact I I in the other end, 
and in my personal philosophy, I don't believe in the supernatural per se, only just the higher natural. No, I, I never thought of that. The the supernatural. I don't either. I mean, I'm kind of a pragmatist. I don't, you know, I. Anytime anyone tries to talk about ghosts or angels or devils or satanic this, no, even I'm really it, skeptical. Very I, you know, skeptical. Very, I am too. That and that I and even if my wife's a fan of the Ghost Hunter show, you ever see that? Never. They try to pretend that they are uh, capable of skepticism and debunking, and they do a little of it, but then. Uh, mysteriously, they're able to communicate with ghosts electronically all the time. Uh, they're some of the most credulous people who, uh, you ever saw. And there's this whole thing in our culture where people can't deal with conventional religions. They get sucked into UFOs, and they get yeah. sucked into ghosts, and they get sucked into New Age stuff. Yeah. So I'm trying to find some way to have a kind of transcendent event happen in the book without it having that feeling of of uh, open-ended, supernaturally div stuff, you know, where it's not, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I argue with my friends who are interested in esoteric things, because I don't like the term sacred. Me neither. I don't, I just don't think anything is sacred. I, I think that some things are really kind of re super refined, so that we, you know, we can't really see them at our level very well. And um, you can see this when you look at physics, you know, and high-energy physics. Uh, but that's not sacred. That's just, that's just, um, um, it just vibrates really rapidly to, uh, relative to us. But uh, I don't know if there's a life after death either. I mean, right. I'm, you know, I, I haven't, I don't remember if I've died. So I just go with a hypothesis that there might be. But, um, you know, it's so, it's, it's this like grand metaphor to play with, though, those things, life after death, if you use it in fiction and fantasy. But I like the quote from Mark Twain. Uh, he said, um, uh, I was dead for billions of years before I was born, and it never caused me a moment's discomfort. Ooh, that's nice. <laughs> Ooh. So at the worst, you know, that's what you get, back to where you were before you were born. So what's so terrible? <laughs> well, the, the closest I come to any philosophy of destiny is that everything on the planet is born or has a potential. And it's, to me, it's kind of a shame if it doesn't all get fulfilled. But then you could have potentials that you don't even discover till you're really late in life, like, Grandma Moses, who supposedly didn't start painting until her 70s or something. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, some, for, somehow there's something that's you know, calling us to fulfill these things. Uh, for some reason, it's important to, to explore creativity you know, on, for whoever you are. Uh, it's kind of mysterious as to why it's important, but it is. It's as if it's being recorded somewhere. Well, I think that, I mean, that's, to be an artist these days or create a creative, you have to start recording in some medium, whether it's pen on paper or videotape or in a punk rock band on your first 45 or something. 
and now you know now the the old the medium is the internet somehow and that's where they f people feel realist and it's very it's so easy to slip into the um uh you know these kids today kind of attitude about about where media is at now you know and um the and the the kind of immersion that that people have in uh their iPads, iFad, my friend calls them, and <laughs> and, uh, uh, and you know um, their websites and their blogs and their tweeting. Oh, tweeting! Um, tweeting is like the you know the lowest expression of that media. It seems to me, you know, it's like the basest, <laughs> vulgarest even expression. Even when it's not being obviously vulgar, it's still it's it is some it is. Like uh, intellectual vulgarity or something, or cognitive vulgarity in tweeting, it's just really low. It's, it started with chat rooms, and I remember people used to ask me to be interviewed in chat rooms. Hmm. People would come to the chat room and they say, "Today we have, you know, author John Shirley." And but when you when you talk in a chat room, you have a little box that you type in. Hmm. It's about, you know, it's this tiny little box on the screen and you can only do, it's about a little more than a tweet, you know, and this is going back, I mean, they still have them, but that's how it started. And it, it's suddenly you were forced to express yourself in tiny, short little fragments, which as you can see, I'm not very good at. I tend to, you know, no, I, I tend, I, great. you know, but uh, it, it was like very restricting. You can't have any long thoughts. In a chat room, see, every and so the internet is this paradox. It's it's like makes all these new connections for people, and at the same time, it's constantly fragmenting people, mm -hmm. both things at once. You know, and um, it's I mean, it's it's doing as much harm as good, mm -hmm. and as much good as harm. It's really hard to figure out where it's going. Well, well, you know, I, I actually have a tweet that I follow, but I, I don't subscribe to it. I Every couple of weeks, I go to the person's tweet website, and I just download, I print out all the little tweets he's done. Well, they, I could see that with, like, especially if you do it that way, because at least you have some kind of flow, yeah. you know, you get some kind of continuity or something, you know. Then you, you might get some kind of redolence of their personality, and especially if it's a really special person who's good at little bursts but for a lot of people it's just attention deficit uh, time you know <laughs> the person I follow is named Nassim, Nassim Taleb and he tries to um, only post aphorisms it is a form that that's about all it's good for I mean af, you know aphorisms uh, you, you can fit aphorisms in there yeah yeah and and uh, that's about the best that it, that you can do with Twitter is is a good aphorism. It's aphoristic, but it, usually it doesn't. Usually, most people just uh, you know it's like it's more it's more like uh, mental spittle. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. With Taleb, I feel like I'm reading Heraclitus's philosophical fragments. Okay, well, that's very that's very valuable. I'm an admirer of Heraclitus. I'll have to check him out. That's the only one, I might add, that I know about. <laughs> I mean, I kind of thought, 
hey, this is a way to write my own Heraclitus Fragments book is to is to start twittering whenever I think of some condensed, concise, aphoristic or philosophical thought, and then maybe in six months my whole file could be printed out as a book, or someone could do this. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Well, you know, if you impose that form on yourself, you might come up with something good. Somebody's got to do something good with it. <laughs> well, I remember years ago, you, you used to, when you went around to various events in San Francisco, you used to, to notate everything that happened, everything interesting anybody said in, a little, in little books. Yeah. Little tiny books. I bet you saved them all. Yeah. Did Did you ever enter them into uh, no. files? No, but I should. You should get them out, put them in chronological order, and go through them and enter them into computer files, and then you can extract cool little things to, to put out there. That's true. There's and There's all this history of the of you know San Francisco counterculture that, but some amazing um, scenes uh, came uh, arose. You know. I mean, survival research in that whole time, you know. Um, it's documented in some ways, but the kind of like, like when you have a dinner party with some of those people, you were the only one documenting it in a way. That's true. With a tiny little, tiny little scribblings in tiny little books. Like, you know, your, your <laughs> finger moved minutely, but you were recording amazing amounts of stuff, I remember. Seems like you've recorded amazing amounts, and you must have a pile of books that high by now. Well, literally, I have a. I've written a, quite a, a number of books over the years, but it's all that I'm uh, capable of of, of doing uh, in the world. It seems that with any consistency, I. Uh, it's all I'm competent to do, really. And if I was, you know, competent to be. Uh, uh, you know, a, a lawyer for the poor, or a, a, a politician, or a, well, if I didn't have the checkered background I've got, I couldn't really be a politician. But um, or or an engineer, uh, or something, uh, or a scientist. You know, but I'm not competent to do those things. This is so. I'm only competent to um, make up stories and occasionally do some journalism. I've done some of that and uh, entertain people, and then. I've got a pretty uh, irritatingly didactic nature, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I, I I have a tendency to kind of work in a, a theme in a sort of way in in all of even my some of my pulpiest things, as like my early no science fiction novels. Um, there's usually some kind of political theme or or a philosophical idea that I'm hammering on. Uh, rather heavy-handedly, but I've, I've over the years I've learned how to put that into the background and and bring the story into the foreground, and then just somehow just have the story be more pure allegory, and then you figure out what it's about later. That's that's more of the ideal. And somebody like John Steinbeck, you know, was able to do that. But I was influenced by people like Steinbeck, but also by uh, George Orwell and Aldous Huxley, where they you know, they were trying to entertain and make a statement at once and trying to find some way to fuse those things without being a bore about it. And when you can do it, it's great. I can't always achieve it, but uh, you know that's, I do admire that. 
because those people changed the world. Dickens yeah. is a great example. Oh, yeah. Charles Dickens actually affected how laws were made in, in England in the 19th century. I mean, he, he, his novels affected people's lives. And I don't think I've ever had that effect, but I dream of it. I dream of like writing some fiction that has like reverberations in the world that makes people change how they think a little bit so that it makes a difference in someone's life. But Dickens had a genius for it. And he was, he was rarely heavy, too heavy-handed about it. He was usually really super entertaining. Margaret Atwood is a kind of a contemporary person who does that in a way. I mean, she makes very strong anti-fascist statements. Uh, and in her science fiction, which she doesn't like to admit as science fiction. Wow, you're right. I, I never, I never thought of Dickens in that light before. That of writing to change the world. I'm not sure that he had that as a goal, but by giving a a very turn it seemingly popular expression and of a sort of giving a voice to the downtrodden mm -hmm. and the lower classes or whatever you want to call them. He, he, he brought more justice into the world. He did, and he did have it as a goal, especially in certain works. I mean, he specifically set out to show how horrible the lives were for people um, in uh, working coal fields and in the coal-oriented uh, towns of England at, at a certain point. And um, uh, he set out to do it and find an entertaining way to do it. Um, you know, he um, he did. Uh, he also set out to uh, reform um, uh, debtors' prisons because oh. he had been in one as a child because of his father uh, had had been a debtor, and um, the whole family would go, uh, and he had some experience of that, and you know, he he really wanted to make a difference. And, and he did to some extent. Another famous example is Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe. She was definitely setting out to make things different for slaves and, had, and it had a big effect. It converted a lot of people into um, being against slavery. Oh, this is a great way to look at literature and history and, and have a different timeline, shall mm -hmm. we say. Yeah. Let's think of more. I well, mean, Upton Sinclair, The Jungle. Right. And there were a lot of people like this. Um, uh, there was. Um, well, Tolstoy was an anarchist. Well, Tolstoy was trying to make a statement about alternatives. You know, he was like saying, why can't we try this? Why can't we try this? Because when he looked around at the world, he just saw such incredible injustice yeah. and was taking part in it as a kind of. Um, uh, a, a man born into a certain amount of money and and having, you know, his father had this big uh, farm and, and he had serfs and everything and so he was struggling with, with that, with the morality of it and at a time when other people didn't even bother. And he would try to think of different ways to, uh, what alternatives can we come up with and he, and yeah, he you know, a kind of anarchistic system, a sort of syndical anarchism or something where kind of a homegrown, rootsy anarchism that he was trying for, you know. Uh, and then, you know, also he was sort of exposing the, you know, the causes of war and peace and, mm -hmm. and, 
you know, the, I can also appreciate writers who just want to have a, a sort of uh, existential or just objective artistic view of of life, and uh, and really don't have an axe to grind. And um, like Ballard, I think doesn't really try to define Ballard's politics. I mean, does he have politics? <laughs> I I don't think he does really. I did per se. I mean, if he did, maybe it was vaguely sort of to the right. But on the other hand, he didn't like to be, he liked to be, you know, he's very much about freedom, but he, I don't think he had any one definite political thing going, though. You're and right. It, and, uh, but, you know, something about him was that he just changed, he made you look at the world, though. You just, all this stuff you just were just used to. Guy like him would make you look at it again. You, you know, you see an intersection that you drive through or a freeway that you drive through and then after reading The Concrete Island, you see it differently. And uh, it becomes a symbolic space and, you know, it's about the human, uh, the human condition. And that is a different, that's a whole different kind of liberation. You know, I, I, uh, I try for it sometimes, but he was great at that. You, you know, he did. I, I mean, his last book was... He 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 did a pretty deep critique of just the the whole image and mythology and around a you know a, a private shopping mall really right which is a really in a weird way it's all private space and and a different kind of a gated community yes you enter and the book before then Millennium People was on gated communities for the upper middle class. Yeah. And just the whole critique of the and the yeah. siege mentality or not, the, yeah. the possible racism that might yeah. arise. Yeah, there's a critique, you know, that has some political ramifications. But there, but there isn't in him any particular, uh, you know, uh, political theory. Is like therefore right. we must become Marxists, or yes. therefore we must be this or that. It's just like look at this, you yeah. know. And he makes you see it. You know, and, and he makes, he's really very honest. Also, it's just, uh, he's, he's saying, look, this is our new condition. Yeah. You know, look, here is our new condition. Um, and uh, it's like this little, as if you're, you're uh, exploring a new world and it's your mall, you know? <laughs> yeah, a new, yeah, outer, inner, it's, it's the new outer space. It's right yeah, here on it's, planet But it's Earth. your mall. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's that feeling. No, you're absolutely right. He, if there was, you can't, you can't label with any political school, not even situationism or anarchism or, right. or I, I don't even know what the most forward edge political theory is these days. I think his, his political school was surrealism. Yes. Ex but not Bretonian surrealism, yes. which was Marxist. <laughs> yes, you nailed it. You nailed it. There is a there is a dichotomy in surrealism, and then there's Marxist surrealism like yeah. Breton and uh, uh, Louis Buñuel. You know, is Louis Buñuel very influenced by socialism at least, but also a surrealist. And then there's uh, the pure surrealism like uh, Dali and uh, and the, the early Max Ernst and the early Duchamp and uh, Tanguy. You know. There's no socialism in, in, in Tangi, you know, and uh, people like that. 
I think everything in the world reflects everything else in the world. And that sounds like such a generality, but like with the internet, this is seems so Ballardian to me when I read statistics like actually 97% of all email traffic is now spam and actually most of the web surfing that goes on at least 70% is to sex sites. I mean to me oh, these God. are Ballardian points of view. Um, 70% oh my god. I, could, I wouldn't be surprised if it were higher on both <laughs> counts. I mean we get so much spam and we can't change our email the way most humans can because we have a small business. Mm. And um, it's easy for me to, to you know, give credibility to statements like now 97% of all email back and forth is spammed by people trying to sell you something. Yeah, I mean, it probably seems like that, especially if you have a business and your email is just out there. And, you know, yeah, I, I regularly get... Um, Get emails informing me that I've I've won a million dollars and all I have to do is send them fifty dollars to get a million dollars. That's another thing. But and sometimes I, I experiment with writing back to them and ask them. You know, I I was just I'm just doing a survey. What is it really like to be a parasite? Is it? You know, I just want to know how that feels. Could you just tell me? And I can. You know, and I've never got a response. But it's all automated. I mean, there's no real human. As soon as they use an email address to send it, I think they just void it and get a new account. Yeah, ultimately, it's probably all sent by some artificial intelligence that yes. is accru accruing money for to take over the world. And the originators of it have died years ago, yeah. <laughs> as they had his own independent existence, and it's it sending out spam and somewhere in Russia, and and people, you know, you know. That's, I'm sure there are variations in that story, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's like it's like the computers. Some computers will take over the world, and they'll be here sending spam. After all, the humans have been become extinct. Yeah, <laughs> and it's the humans <laughs> send. It's the machines sending back and forth spam communications to each other with it. In, yeah. it you know, not. Not, not knowing or not caring that they're not actually people and exchanging, no. exchanging units of money, you know. <laughs> One computer says to another, you've won a million dollars. You know, I really wouldn't be surprised if it weren't possible for some kind of f simulated life force to, you know, to become some, some kind of computer network, I guess, that I can't even quite fathom, to just take on an autonomous, self-perpetuating existence. Or, or at least something that you couldn't tell from its own, you know, a, an independent existence. You know, it's like the whole question of what is consciousness and what is individuality and self-awareness is, is the, one of the big conundrums of our age. And, and I, I have some kind of intuitive opinions about it, but you can argue forever about that. Um, you know, reductionists will say it's purely mechanical, but somehow that's never completely persuasive. There seems like this one little element they can't account for, and uh, just some kind of root self-awareness that it's difficult to, to really account for in a, in a purely mechanical uh, uh, system or model. Um,
but you can't convince anybody of that. You either have that point of view or you don't. And I always get into arguments with the uh, people who believe in the singularity. You know, you know about that, mm-hmm. where it's oh, it's you know, Silicon Valley is very a lot of people into that, and and um, I don't know that theory. Well, it's this idea that there's a um, a big technological wave coming that will make it possible to upload your mind into computers, um, and to that where and you will be able to be so merged with technology that. Um, there's no difference between the biological and the technical, or technological, or the interface perfectly, sort of. Um, and so you have immortality, and uh, you know the, this. I, it's just the idea of the transference of an identity into a machine. For, for but to me, you know, it's it's a, a strange idea that if you that a copy is the original. <laughs> Um, you know, you can copy a personality in some sense, but how is that the, the person, really? And, and um, I, I just don't think it would have uh, personhood or selfhood in some fundamental way that is impossible for me to describe. But, but, but they believe it, and to them it's their, it's their rapture. <laughs> and those of us who don't get with singularity are the left behind for those guys. Woo. And... One thing that will define it, if it does exist, is how much money you have. Oh. Because if, if it's going to be a very expensive process to transfer yourself into a machine, your personality into a machine, and to, and to become a, basically a cyborg you know, that can live on and replace all your parts with things grown in vats and also uh, computer chips that enhance your mind and connect you with all these other systems outside. I'm not using the hippest terminology for it because I didn't bother to learn it. But, <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, I, I started out as a kind of a cyberpunk writer, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm really kind of more of a classical-leaning person in a lot of ways. That's why I have Edgar Allan Poe on my chest. You know, I'm more, I'm I'm more of a Poe person than a, uh, you know, than, than a real cyberpunk writer, I guess. Uh, Larry McCaffrey said that I was the postmodern Poe. And I've cherished that. I've always wanted to live up to being the postmodern Poe. I, I like that because, I mean, we are Americans, and, and Poe is one of our greatest yeah. you know, poets we've ever had. Great poet, great uh, storyteller. And invented the mystery genre. Invented the detective. And I was just reading a biography of Conan Doyle, who created Sherlock Holmes, um, and the Lost World and many other oh, things. Right. You know, um, prof- That's right. Holmes was more than a... Mystery writer, he was also a sci-fi writer, you could say. The, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Conan Doyle did write science fiction. He wrote The Poison Belt, and he wrote um, uh, The Lost World, and, um, and he wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories, um, and he also wrote historical novels, and um, fascinating character. And he, but his biggest influence was Edgar Allan Poe. Wow. And he, he said so when he visited America, and, but you know you can see it, and Poe created um, the you know the kind of the classic detective hero um, in, in the Gold Bug and stories like that, mm-hmm. and then um, th- that was appropriated with some changes to become Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, 
And and Holmes lived here on Sacramento Street or something. There's Holmes a or, or Doyle? A Doyle, I mean. Sorry, yeah. I keep confusing the two. But that's common. People, people. It's he is the one character who more people believe was a real person than any other. Wow. There's a whole syndrome of people believing Sherlock Holmes was real, and he used to get hundreds and hundreds of letters uh, asking for Sherlock Holmes's help. Doyle did, and. Uh, there are still people, millions of people around the world who believe he's a real person. They just won't believe that he was fiction. But, yeah, Doyle was here for a while, and, and uh, oh, Stevenson was here. And, yeah, yeah, there's a plaque in Chinatown a few yeah. blocks away. Yeah. Stevenson is another great one. Oh, Treasure Island. And kidnapped and kidnapped. many great things. Yeah. I yeah. love people like that. And... Uh, and you know they had it. It was an adventure, but there was also something always meaningful in it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Doyle then went off on a weird tangent and became a spiritualist. That's right. And and uh, leader of the spiritual movement. It was a whole movement in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, in Britain. Just a fanatic, you know. Um, had friends with Houdini and then enemies with Houdini over it. That's right. Those are the lesser-known books. What what are they called? The White Company and well, The White Company is a historical novel. But he but there's one I think called Land of the Mist, which is his which is Doyle's uh, spiritualist novel. Mm-hmm. I think it's called Land of Mist or Land of the Mist. Um, and and um, yeah, it involves mediums and all that stuff. Has written toward the end of his life, and it's not one of his best books apparently, but. Uh, it's interesting. I'm actually writing a novel set in the afterlife now, and with, but it's fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if there is one, right. but it's so much fun to play with, and um, to, it, there's a mystery story unfolding in the afterlife in my novel. So mm. I, I'm I'm having fun with that, but uh, I make up and I again make up my own afterlife. It's a little bit. F- it's a little bit based on theosophical stuff like the spiritualist, a little bit. They have this whole tenet uh, and how it worked and this whole kind of interior logic. You know, an afterlife story, even if you're a total atheist about the afterlife, it's totally just like, I don't, agnostic, I'm kind of agnostic about it. Right. It's still an area for, for, uh, where you can explore the human condition allegorically. You know, a guy comes... Generally, in an afterlife story, they, they have another mirror for looking at their life during when they were alive. Yes. So it's, it's, um, it's kind of like, you know, you get a totally different perspective, um, like, you know, from above, I guess. You, you know, it's, it is the genre that I place Ballard in and yourself, speculative fiction. It's not about some life on Mars and alien life forms. It's really about life here, just barely ahead of the future. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what we, what I'm really most interested in, what's just a little bit ahead, or maybe. Yeah. I mean, even when I was writing a, a science fiction story set on another planet, it was really just about some dilemma in our own world, you know. And that's how it is with Philip Dick, if you look at um, Martian time slip, or, uh, you know, or something like that. But if, I had this old story years ago in which um, people were bowling with planets, sort of. They were, 
they were like they were making an artistic art form of smashing planets together and then filming it and um so it was this huge kind of decadent thing obviously um and uh the, i think you know what i was really reacting to was imperialism you know in 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 the world and and just and uh, people uh T just taking huge swaths of the environment and and using it for tiny petty little purposes in our world, and so I was projecting it into this allegory of these people smashing planets for their amusement. Wow. Wow, that's our brave new world that is still ahead of us. Yeah. Fifty years or more after Huxley coined the phrase. Well, you know. Uh, there's, uh, there are always going to be survivors. Just try to keep that in mind. No matter what people say, there are always going to be survivors. Well, let's hope we're amongst them. Yeah. Well, we've come to the end of the counterculture hour, I'm afraid, and so we thank John Shirley, you know, who's the imaginative vision, visionary of the future, for being on the counterculture hour. Thank you, John Shirley. It was great. You've been listening to Research Conversations Podcast with host V. Vale and special guest John Shirley. <laughs> <laughs>